Uh, we're going to be wrapping up our Colossians series, and so I'm going to ask you to kind of go back in your mind with me uh, for several months back now to the end of November uh, when we fo- last spoke out of the book of Colossians. And uh, if you remember briefly, we, we spoke to you out of Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, in reference to continuing in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. And that's where we ended uh, our, our discussion, and we're going to pick up there in verse number 3 and work our way down through the rest of this chapter, and uh, the plan is to do this over the next three Sundays and uh, walk through these last, uh, this last section of Colossians. Um, as I've been reading through this over the last several days and uh, just reminding myself of all that is contained in them, um, it's just so many wonderful relationships that are mentioned in the end of this chapter. And there's some beautiful um, tie-in stories to go with these as well, and looking forward to unpacking those in the week to come. But we have a short section this morning of instruction uh, from the Apostle Paul, and I want to give you, uh, if I could, a reminder of where we've been, and at the same time, kind of focus us in on where we're going this morning. And so I want want to ask you to think with me on this before I give you the introduction uh, to the message And uh, we're going to pray together in just a moment. But I want to give you this question before we read the scripture and pray. What is your role this morning as you sit in this church and you attend week after week? What is your personal role in developing, training, and sending men and women into gospel ministry, both within the walls of this church and around the world? What is your role? And I think if we're not careful, and we've cautioned us on this so many times, that we say, well, that's the pastor's role, or that's the pastor's role, or maybe that's the deacon's role to prepare men and women for ministry, and I don't really have a function in that. And nothing could be further from the truth according to New Testament uh, understanding of what the church is about. The church is about training and sending. The church is about equipping people for the work of ministry. And each person in the church is a vital part of that. And Paul is going to touch on, I think, a crucial part of the role of the individuals in the church as we think of sending people into gospel ministry. There is a great need in this world today for Bible-focused, faithful preaching and teaching of the Word across our country and across the world. We are very familiar with the gospel. We're very familiar with... Um, church, and we can get so wrapped up in the routine of it all that we fail to see the importance lies in the faithful teaching of the Word of God. And that's what we must put forward as we walk into the text this morning. And so if you would, let's read verses 2 through 6 this morning, and then I'd like to pray together as we step into this text again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving at the same time, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray together. Father, We ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God this morning. Father, we ask you that you would open our eyes as we walk through this text this morning, that, Lord, you would be lifted up. 
your name would be magnified, and that, Father, we would be edified through the teaching and preaching of the Word of God this morning. Holy Spirit of God, do a work that I cannot do, that, Lord, I've never been able to do, and that is touch the hearts of people, but only your Holy Spirit can do that work. And, Lord, we ask you that you would just have free course in our hearts this morning. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. So we've come to the last chapter of Colossians. We have seen that Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. He is supreme. We do not need Christ and anything. It is Christ and Christ alone that is our sufficiency. We cannot measure up or climb up to the great heights of enlightenment, uh, but Christ is the fullness of knowledge and power. We are not laboring to reach some new understanding of truth, but Christ is all in all. And this, this is so very important <clears throat> that we get this nailed down in our mind that we are not trying to do spiritual rituals or rites or routines in order to reach enlightenment, but we're trying, we go through the routines and the routine uh, walking with God that we may know Christ who is our enlightenment. He is the light that we need, and we do what we do that we might see Christ. We have walked through the practical application of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, and we have made the application to the most intimate relationships of life. When we said husbands and wives to love one another and to submit, and children to obey, and fathers not to provoke or to cause trouble to our children, uh, but to bring them up, as Ephesians would tell us, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We've walked into masters and servants and how they're to behave, and now we're stepping in to this final admonition. It's as if Paul is wrapping it all up and saying, now in conclusion, let me say these things very quickly before I get done with the message. And he's saying, continue in prayer, continue in this. Paul addresses the church as a body and the people as individuals. You know, and he says, I want to talk to you about two things. And over the next week, or this, this, this Sunday here, and over the next couple of weeks, Paul is going to address two things, our prayer life and our walk. He said, here's what I, I want to sum it up. You need a prayer life. Not just a prayer time, but a life of prayer. And you need a walk that would match that life of prayer. And he's going to challenge us on those two things as we walk into this. We looked at verse 2 briefly and we said to continue in prayer. That prayer is not a try it and see if it, can, it works. But it is continue in prayer. And even when it seems like our prayers are not answered, continue faithful in prayer. That prayer is the call of the believer. Even when it seems that the heavens are brass and the earth is made out of stone and nothing is bearing fruit and no answers are coming, God is still worthy of our thanksgiving and our prayer. And here's the thing, God does not need to do one more thing for me for him to be worthy of my thanksgiving. He doesn't owe me anything else, and I can go to him and give him thanks this morning. And as Pastor Caleb was leading us through uh, communion this morning, and he made the statement there before we took the elements, he said, this is broken for you. And truly, his body was broken for us. But long before I understood it was broken for me, it was broken by me. It was me who broke his body. It was me who shed his blood. And yet he died for me, the one who was guilty of his broken body and his shed blood. And we stand this morning recipients of God's grace. And that alone gives us enough to be thankful for for eternity. And so he said, I want you to continue in prayer. Prayer this morning. He said, I want it to be watchful in prayer, alert, awake. 
The Greek root word behind this staying alert or awake here is where we get the name Gregory. And so if your name is Gregory this morning, it means to be alert, to be awake. There it is. I see him right there. He's alert and awake. And uh, he wasn't sleeping before I said that, just so you know. So, uh, but we're alert. We're awake. It's, it's to, to be on guard and to be vigilant about what needs to be prayed, prayed for and what needs to be given thanks for. And both of those things should be an alertness in our prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is a request for divine assistance in the roles God has given us, that, that are given to us by God. Prayer is asking God to accomplish His will on earth through us. And we do this and are reminded and encouraged in prayer when we continue in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is stopping to remind us of what God has done. While prayer is acting, asking God to act tomorrow or act today. It is looking back and saying, man, what good things God has done. And let me say this. If you do not have your tank full of thanksgiving, you will not move the engine of prayer. Because thanksgiving is the fuel that prayer runs on. Because as we give thanks, our hearts are stirred to pray to the God who has done so many good things. And we see God as high and lifted up in this. You know, as I was thinking of our church, and I think we can all confess this morning that prayer becomes routine. We don't want it to be routine. I don't think anybody who leads in public prayer thinks of it as routine, but if we're not careful, it can just become routine. And I think when we gather uh, for prayer meetings and we gather for prayer times and even we gather with one another, it's important that we stop and remember that we are talking to the God of heaven. And that this is not, that God hears us when we pray. And that the God of heaven, the one who spoke it all into existence and holds it together by the power of his word, is the one that hears us when we pray. Let us be intentional when we come to prayer, but I, I am thankful. And, and here, here's the thing. I think we can get a little bit jaded sometimes because we do pray often. I mean, we, we don't do anything without starting in prayer, right? And we gather for meals, we pray, we stop to get ice cream, we pray. You know, we, we go through the drive-thru, we're driving through the drive-thru, and somebody hand me my fries, who's going to pray, you know? And then we joke, hey, if the driver's praying, don't close your eyes while you're praying, right? And, and we, 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 we just, it's just a routine. It's a, it's a ritual that we go through. And let me just say this. Don't go to the jaded place of saying, we just don't pre treat prayer serious enough, so let's just stop. I heard, heard people say, well, you know, I think the prayer before meals is too rote, it's too ritual, and so I'm not going to do it anymore until we can mean business about it. How about you do it until you mean business about it? How about we keep the tradition of prayer and everything we do, and as we pray, ask God to open our eyes to what transaction is taking place. Because here's the thing, if you've forgotten about what's going on, he hasn't forgotten about what's going on. God has never one time taken flippantly the prayers of his saints. He hears what we're praying, and he treasures up the prayers that we pray. And even when we do it, I believe, from hearts of affliction or even anger, God hears us. He recorded every one of the Psalms. And they were psalms of anger and frustration, and yet God pins them down. Even our tears, he keeps in a bottle. 
And God is a faithful God. I'm thankful at our church that we pray together on Wednesday night. We have a group of ladies and men that gather on Tuesday mornings to pray. And Tuesday night, there's another very quiet prayer meeting that goes on here. And Thursdays, uh, there's a time for prayer with our pastors around the text of Scripture as we stop and pray together. Our Awana teams gather before uh, they start on Wednesday night and they bow their heads and pray together. Our growth groups gather in prayer. Our deacons meetings now open in prayer and intentional prayer for the people of the church. We gather on Sunday mornings around this uh, pulpit here and we walk through the service and we pray together and let us add times of prayer and let us make serious the times that we pray. And Paul is saying continue in prayer. Then he says what are we praying for? I looked at this text and I looked at this word and I wanted it to say uh, more than maybe it says but in verse 3 he says at the same time. I wondered if that meant Paul was calling them to corporate prayer but I think he's saying also don't just continue instead prayer but also pray for us. I think Paul's adding an also to this. Don't do one or the other, but I want you to pray with thanksgiving and then also pray for us. Now, I think the admonition here is that Paul is calling them to pray corporately together. He's calling them to pray individually. And what has Paul prayed for in this text? As he comes, he says, pray that an open door. Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, this is an interesting phrase, and it's a common theme in the New Testament that a door would be open. In Revelation 3, 7 through 8, uh, he tells us that God will open a door that no man can shut, and he shuts a door that no man can open. And again, if the gospel is to go forward, if the word of God is to abound, God has to make it receivable to the hearts of the people to whom it is preached to. God opens doors and God shuts doors. We find in Asia, Paul uh, had a closed door in Acts 16, 6, when he wanted to go into Asia, and God said, no, no, no. And then we see him seeing a vision uh, from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he went there and he saw a man in Macedonia. And man, I can't wait to the month of March when we preach through Acts 16. He said, come over and help us. And we think about missions and the work that was happening there. And they launched out to go to Macedonia. And what does he do? He gets there and he meets some women down by the, by the river. And what are they doing? They're praying. And he meets a young girl who is demon possessed. And I can imagine Paul and Silas as they're sitting in the prison. They're saying, Lord, I thought you said there was a man here that wanted us to come over and help us. And all we found is a group of women in a prayer meeting and a young girl that's gotten us thrown into jail. And yet Paul and Silas continue to pray, to give thanks, and to sing. And what does God do? He opens a door. Very literally, he opens a door. And he's praying that God would open a door. God answers prayers. God is the God who answers prayers. We see him doing this as we're praying this prayer. God answers this prayer to where even those of the imperial guard, according to Philippians 1, 12 through 13, hear the message. And Paul is praying this from prison. And I wonder if Paul is not sitting in his prison cell and looking at the very door that is keeping him locked inside and saying, pray that a door would be opened. Pray that a door would be opened. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't pray to be released from jail. Paul didn't say, pray that a door would be open for us. But pray, and read the words if you would to, pray also for us that God may open to us a door, not for us, but for the word. 
That's what we want the door open for, that the word of God would go forth. Not for us, but for the word of God. Let me just say this morning that the goal of Shelby Bible Church and all of its leaders should never be to seek to expand the influence of Shelby Bible Church for the sake of the brand. There's something incredibly nauseating to New Testament Christianity to see church as a marketing opportunity. It is not right. It is not acceptable. Paul wasn't putting uh, his label out in front of people saying, hey, come to Paul Ministries Incorporated. No, he was preaching the word, and he's saying, even if I'm locked in this prison, let the word go forward. And this morning, let me remind us all that men will fail, leaders will disappoint, establishments will crumble into the dustbin of history, but the word of God will march forward, and that is what our prayer should be behind. Let the word of God march forward. That is the only thing that changes the hearts of men and women. And let me make something very clear here. Prayer does not open doors. God opens doors. We pray to the one who can open the door. And it is an amazing thing to see when, you know, my, my daughter sent me a video a few weeks ago. And um, actually, I'll tell you two things. She sent me a, 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 she gave me a cup for Christmas. And the cup says on there, uh, and let me get it straight. Uh, when at first you don't succeed, call dad. I loved it. I would, I'm like, I love that. That just made me feel like 10 feet tall and bulletproof, right? And I, I read that, and then she sent me a video the other day of this young lady who was in a cooking competition, and she's racing against the clock to get things fixed. And what does she do? She takes the jar. She can't get the jar opened. She's trying to get this jar open, and she stops, leaves her table, runs into the audience, and hands the jar to her dad. And her dad pops it open and hands it back to her, and she runs back to the competition. And if we could put it in such trivial ways, but we want to see the doors open to the hearts of our neighbors. We want to see the doors open to our community around us and see the gospel have fruit that only God can do. And let me say this, we're not going to do it by struggling to open the jar, but we're going to have to take the jar and run to our Heavenly Father and say, God, open the door. Open the door. And we run to him and we place it in his hands and understand that he is able to open a door that will be effectual for the gospel ministry. Now what does Paul want the door open for? And he puts a whole lot of weight on the work of ministry here. And I, I don't know that we will give it the justice it needs this morning. But look in verse number 3. He said, open to us a door for the word. What is he wanting to declare? To declare the mystery of Christ and he said, and on account of this, I'm in prison. He said it is proclaiming. And, and, and by the way, I think there's so many things nuanced here. Paul is saying it's because I'm preaching the mystery that I'm in prison. But I'm in prison so that the mystery will be proclaimed. Because Paul is saying in Philippians, he said, look, don't think that these things have fallen out to me, have hindered the gospel. But actually God brought these things about for the furtherance of the gospel. God put the chains on Paul that the gospel would go. We wouldn't put chains on an evangelism, uh, an evangelist so the gospel could be expound. But God said, here's what I need to do. I need to take my A team and put them in prison. 
And he put his A-team in prison so that the gospel could abound into Caesar's palace and a word could go forward. And when we stand back, we're not thinking, man, isn't Paul good at doing citywide campaigns? No, we're standing back and saying, isn't it amazing what the Holy Spirit does with sinners who are converted that depend upon him? So Paul in prison is praying that the word of God would go forward. He said, because I want to speak the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Declare the mystery. We could look back into all of Paul's epistles and see him using this term mystery and mystery over and over again. As a matter of fact, we see this phrase used by Paul 21 different times in the New Testament. This, this word mystery of Christ or mystery, and we use it in different terms and different ways, and it's the mystery that uh, we see, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the, the translation of the living saints at the end of the church age, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the mystery of Christ uh, who is the hope of glory, the mystery of God, even Christ. That is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of operations uh, to restore those who are uh, ungodly. And we can look through all of these mysteries, but what exactly is he talking about in these mysteries? And, and, I, and I love this definition, and, and I, I, I've written this definition, but I based it upon the, the, the biblical dictionary that I was reading this week. And, and I, I think this kind of gets to what the mystery is, because Paul is not talking about something that we don't know anything about. He's not talking about something that is hidden from us necessarily. But he's talking about something that was previously hidden that has now been made known, but there remains a supernatural element to it that cannot be explained. This is the mystery of the gospel, is it not? That God became flesh, dwelt among us, was crucified, buried, and rose again, and ever is ever interceding for us. And we know that's how the gospel plan works. But there's so many things that we still can't explain. Explain to me how God became flesh. Explain to me how that a person of the Godhead died. Explain to me how that the light shines in the hearts of rebels and the gospel takes place. And by the way, you're not saved because you prayed the right prayer. You're not saved because you said some magical words. You're saved because the gospel of Jesus Christ shone in your heart and you believed on that gospel. And that, my friend, is a mystery. And I don't comprehend how all of that works and we still don't know. But I do know this, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is the hope that we have in this mystery. And it's something that, yes, it has been hidden in the past. That Gentiles, you and I, you know, the Gentiles, the crazy people who are killing one another and drinking each other's blood and shoving bones through our noses and doing all kinds of crazy things to our bodies and living in ancestral relationships. And the Jews stood back and looked at us Gentiles and said, those dogs, those people have been a church marching for the last 2,000 years through time and through history and through kingdoms, proclaiming the grace and the mercy of God. Friend, that's a mystery. We know that's what God's doing, but I can't tell you why or how he's doing it. He's doing it for his glory. And this mystery, Paul is using it, I believe, as sort of a shorthand to declare to us the substitutionary atoning death for all who believe 
both of Jew and Gentile, called and chosen by God out of this world into the church that he has purchased with his own blood. And he secures them by his spirit under the day that he translates them finally into his kingdom bodily. This work is according to the eternal purpose of God and ordained before the world began. This is the story of scripture that he has been progressively unfolding. And he explained by God's grace in God's time he has unfolded it to us. And yet even though we know this is the plan, it still remains supernatural. It remains something that we can't comprehend on our own. That I may make it clear. Paul said, this is the mystery. And he goes, and I want to make it clear. And man, isn't that the goal of gospel preaching? When we talk to our neighbors, what are we trying to do? I just want to make it clear. I just want to make the gospel clear so that you will understand it. I want to remove all of the confusion that has been put in front of the gospel and make it clear to you. And this word here, to make clear, means to make manifest. Literally, some translations use the word manifest here. That they would make manifest. And I thought, well, what is a manifest? Well, you know what a shipping manifest is, don't we? What does a manifest do for us? It tells us everything that's on the inside. And Paul is saying, hey, I want to make sure that everything's on the manifest here, that you understand it. And you know what's on the inside here of the gospel. And I want to make it known by teaching of the word of God what is clear. Paul is often on this theme about making the word of God clear. You see, here's the thing. And I want you to see this in 2 Corinthians because I I think we would do injustice to this text without going here. Regardless of the hour and if we need to add another week to finish Colossians, what's another week, right? Right? Look in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having this ministry, by our faithfulness and worthiness. Is that what the text says? No, he said we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose hope. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tampering with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul says, and if doing that, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaimed is not ourselves. Man, do you hear that again? What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul said, we're not resting the word of God. We're not using the word of God. We're not doing a sleight of hand with the word of God. We want to declare it plainly and say, here's what the scripture says. And I commend this to your conscience. And I lay this in front of you. He said, I want you to know the gospel. The problem with clarity. Now, let's go back to Colossians here and let's see Paul's instruction here. Verse number four, he said, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
Paul said, this is how I ought to talk about this. This is how I ought to do this. Paul says, I don't have the option not to speak clearly about this. And so I'm, I'm asking you to pray with me that I can make it clear. And you say, Pastor, what then is our role in gospel ministry? Pray that God would let the mystery be made clear through the preaching. This is one of the roles the church has in our prayer, is that the gospel would be made clear. Now, here's the problem with clarity. Clarity takes what is in, let me, let me say this, the problem with ambiguity, let me go there first. The problem with ambiguity or, or cloudiness or misunderstanding <clears throat> is that it confuses and it damns people because they don't know the gospel. When we're not clear with the gospel, we leave people without hope. Because the gospel is not just pray a prayer. The gospel is not just live a good life. The gospel is not turn over a new leaf. The gospel is coming by faith to Jesus Christ. Understanding that you are a sinner. Deserving all of the wrath of God upon you. But it was the wrath of God that is upon you. That Jesus, God's son, came to take upon himself. And it is God saving you not from yourself. Not from Satan. But saving you from him. This is what we need to understand about the gospel. And, and this message of the gospel, we want to make it clear, but when we're not clear on this, we can confuse people and leave people damned to a Christless hell, thinking that we're religious enough to go to heaven. But here's the other problem with clarity. Clarity divides us. Clarity always divides. And I, I have a little illustration for this. <clears throat> you could talk to somebody and you say, hey, you like sports? Yeah. Well, you divided part of the population because some of the population don't like it. What's your favorite sport? Well, mine's football. Well, guess what? You've clarified again. College or pro? You've divided again. Right? And the further you go with this, the more you're going to divide. Eventually, you're going to name a team, and they're going to name a team, and you're divided. I won't even say it. There's a division when you clarify. And here's the thing. When we put on the colors of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we stand arm in arm with brothers and sisters, we clarify. And in clarifying, by default, we divide. And that division is not because we are divisive. That division is because truth divides. And it causes us to stand unapologetically on the finished work of Jesus Christ, understanding that salvation is none of me, it is all of him, and as I clarify that, I divide. Not pleasant, but it is what we are called to do, and Paul says we are called to speak clearly on the ministry. And so, I think we can say that the interaction with God and believers is in the manner above. How are we supposed to act toward one another, pray for one another, pray that the word of God would be spoken clearly to one another, and then we see an interaction for God and with outsiders in the manner of head, walk in wisdom, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. I look at this text and I think what we're giving here is a lot of latitude. I think we're given a lot of latitude and methodology here of how to get the gospel to somebody 
who is lost. Walk in wisdom. Church, put your hearts and minds together and think in wisdom of how we can get the gospel to our neighbors. And then share what you're doing to reach your neighbors and your co-workers with your growth group. And share that with your people in the pew next to you. And do whatever it is that is the creative and the intentional and, and the maybe even innovative thing that you're using to get the gospel to somebody next to you. Walk in wisdom and whatever is the best use of our time, let's do that to get the gospel to those on the outside. The admonition is to redeem the time or seizing every opportunity and losing none opportunity, no opportunity to witness to this lost world. Let our speech be always with grace. This is interesting language here because he uses this walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech be always gracious or be with grace, the King James says. Season with salt. This phrase, season with salt, you'll see that pop up from time to time in Scripture. The season with salt has a reference back to Old Testament sacrifice. That those sacrifices were laid down with salt. That it was a testimony of praise. That I'm saying I want my words to be a sacrifice to the one I'm offering them to. That ultimately our message is not a message to the world. But a message for God's glory that the world hears. And as I speak this word to a lost world, it is seasoned with salt. I, we, as, as salt seasons our food... So let grace season all of our communications. Let grace be the thing in our business dealings, in our fellowship, in our disagreements, in our corrections. And he concludes this. He said that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me say this. I think we do need to make the mystery clear. And this has been abundantly laid out for us, is it not? Make the ministry clear. And he said, but unless you go with your speech, season with grace, you may answer the right what, but you might not do it with the right how. And he said, I want you to know how to answer every man. And it's not just, this is what you need to know and you better get it in your head. That's not how we should answer every man. But we should answer every person with language that is seasoned with grace. And it is this emphatic, immovable truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ paired with a gracious, understanding, listening, loving heart that we are to go to a lost world and proclaim Jesus. And you may, and I would say amen to this, say, Pastor, that just seems in possible. And I agree. Because in our flesh, it is impossible that we can hold these two things in tension. But we can walk in this with the power of the Spirit of God to say, God, open the door and help me walk in grace to those who are on the outside. A consistent life is one that is in agreement with our message. Because our time is short, and a lost testimony will take time to build back. Let us operate with grace. The phrase could be buying up the opportunities to share the gospel. William Hendrickson in his New Testament commentary said this, Behave wisely toward outsiders, always bearing in mind that few men read the sacred scrolls, but all men read you.
few men will open the scriptures and search them, but they will watch us. So let us be gracious. Let us have our language seasoned with salt. Take the application of getting the gospel to a lost world and saying, God, give us wisdom. Wisdom of how to get the gospel to those around us. Give us boldness. Give us clarity. And let us pray, God, raise up men and women from across this church, from across this nation, to fill them with your spirit, to help them see the mystery of the gospel, to train them in gospel ministry and leadership, and then to send them outside the doors of this church to do the work of ministry. And here's what I want us to pray together. God, let it start here. Send our children into gospel ministry. Send our growth group into gospel ministry. Send the person that is my dear friend outside the doors of this church to go plant a church or to go to a mission field. God, send us. Send us. There's a work to do, and there's a God who sustains us in that work. What a blessing we have to labor together. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, what has been said this morning, uh, Lord, I pray that it would be taken and used for the edifying of your people, for the challenging of our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that the gospel would always make us uncomfortable, that the call to evangelism would always set us on edge of seeing there's more that we could do, that the call to prayer would be a conviction to our hearts. And yet, Lord, help us to rest in the fact that you are the one that has started the work in us. And you are the one that will finish the work. And that, Father, we are complete in you. Holy Spirit of God, do that work. In Jesus' precious name, amen.